This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Good evening and welcome to Navarra Live. My name is Aaron Bastani. Tonight, as ever, I'm joined by Michael Walker. However, the tables have turned. The sorcerer is now the apprentice. Michael, how are we ahead of the weekend? Uh, but it's so nice to be at home on a Friday afternoon, isn't it? I feel finally sort of prepared for a weekend. Um, so, yeah, this is great. Well, let, let's make this a more uh, regular thing, Aaron. Is that your way of saying you've had a few cheeky tequilas? <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I've actually been tidying my house while, uh, you know, reading the news. All very uh, low-key. A likely story. Uh, coming up later tonight, a judge has said transphobia did play a role in the murder of Brianna Jai. Labour have abandoned their pledge uh, for billions that would be going towards green investment. And McCarthyism 2.0 in the US Senate. Who would have guessed it? First story. Poll after poll shows the Tories are in freefall. They're repeatedly hitting as little as 20%. Meanwhile, Labour is enjoying leads of 20 points, sometimes more. But there is one variable in how the next general election will turn out that has little to do with either of the main parties. It's Reform UK, owned by Nigel Farage and presently led by Richard Tice. Now, Reform are unlikely to win any seats in the upcoming general election, not unless something dramatic changes. But they could turn a bad defeat for the Tories into something truly historic. A new poll by Redfield and Wilton shows a fifth of 2019 Tory voters in Red Wall seats would vote for reform if an election was held tomorrow. That same poll found just half of those 2019 Tory supporters still plan to vote for Rishi Sunak's party, with 15% going to Labour. It means overall support for reform has hit a new high in the Red Wall, with the party in third place on 14% of the vote, the Tories second with 28%, and Labour in first with a whopping 48% of the vote. In other words, according to this poll, the Tories are set to lose virtually every one of the Leave voting, mostly Northern seats they picked up from Labour in 2019. That's all a far cry from 2020 and the Hartlepool by-election, when Boris Johnson's party won more than 8,000 votes in terms of majority in a seat Labour had actually held on to in 2019. How the mighty have fallen. Uh, This all follows on from some pretty spectacular polling last month by YouGov, which broke down voter preference by age. It's not just Labour and the Lib Dems who are now doing better among under-40s than the Conservative Party. It's also the Greens, too. Under-40s, by the way, not 18 to 24s, not university students, under-40s. However, most interesting, to me at least, are older voters. That's because they have been the bedrock Of four successive Conservative Party victories, Labour is now first among those aged 60 to 69. Why? Because Reform gets 17% of that age cohort, almost all of which, if we use 2019 as a baseline, will be former Conservative voters. Key to remember as well, in 2019, 60 to 69-year-olds I think they were more likely to vote for the Tories than Labour by a factor of almost three to one. About two and a half, three to one. Now Labour lead. So the young are voting Labour, Lib Dem and Green, but many older voters who remember are much more likely to turn out 
are also shifting away from the Tories by looking to their right. However, there could be something which unites those voting for both the Greens and reform, maybe even many Labour and Tory voters too. That's because a new poll by Moran Common shows 74% of people think it's, quote, time for change, while just 26% want to stick with the plan. While that's bad news for Rishi Sunak, there is a fly in the ointment for Labour too, because 59% of respondents agree that Keir Starmer, quote, represents more of the same. Michael, what do you make of this polling for the Reform Party? Yeah, it's interesting to know because, I mean, the Reform Party now does seem very explicitly just to be a sort of lobby group to try and make the Tories more right-wing at the next election. So I'm not sure how that is going to play into their sort of strategy when it comes to the election, who they will stand where. Um, Because, I mean, I think it seems, you know, obviously anything can change, but it seems like the most obvious thing to happen next in in British politics, that Labour win the next general election very comfortably, and then the Tory party massively swings to the right. Now, it could easily be the case that, you know, the Tory party massively swings to the right, and it's all quite chaotic. I think also it could be the case um, that if Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves don't bring about the growth that they've been talking so much about, um, the Conservatives could be in sort of within five years after that. So I think, you know, all of these right-wingers will want to be in the Conservative Party shaping the future of it after the next general election. So, you know, I don't think we're going to see any high-profile defections to to reform. I'm not even sure how many, you know, big names will want to stand for them, unless they sort of have a tacit agreement that, you know, if their favoured Conservative candidate becomes leader, they won't hold it against them that they stood against a Conservative at the last general election. So... Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, reform are in a great position, right? Because they've got they've got leverage over the Conservative Party. Do they actually want to um, hand some seats to the Labour Party? It's it's less clear to me. My view is, I think actually at this point they don't care, and I, I agree that long term they want they want to, the people in reform want to be part of a project which is the largest party in in British politics on the right. Um, however, I think there is a part of them which thinks that they won't be able to grab this organisation from what they view as the sort of the liberal establishment. That's how they view people like Rishi Sunak or David Cameron, Jeremy Hunt. Um, And there is going to be that battle. But Michael, this in the short term at least, is looking like it's existential for the Tories. Lots of people are talking about the Canadian elections a few decades back, where that wasn't a 1997-style result that we had here. You know, they were reduced to, I think, single figures in terms of representatives. Now, We're not looking at that with the Tories, but if the Tories did get low 20s and their vote was composed in such a way that actually they're being squeezed by reform on one end, Lib Dems and Labour on the other, you know, they they could get less than 100 seats. Now, I don't think that will happen. Okay, I don't want to misinform our audience out there. However, according to these polls, if these elections were tomorrow, that would be the result. And I actually, I kind of think that would play out. Of course, we probably have several months to an election. What's your view? Are, are the Tories looking at something worse than maybe 1997? I mean, that easily could be at the next general election. I don't think that would be the end of the Conservative Party, though. I mean, I kind of disagree. I don't see if you were a sort of headbanger right winger, why you would sort of give up on the Conservative Party now and say, let's go all in with reform. Because, you know, obviously they, they did have a period where their favoured candidate, Liz Truss, um, won the, the Democratic election and there was a bit of a coup. Um, but there was only that coup because... They were in government, right? And and Liz Truss sparked a um, a sort of crisis in in the market. So that meant that sort of Rishi Sunak could be sort of imposed on the membership. And it seems quite clear to me that sort of the next time there is a leadership election in the Conservative Party, a proper right winger will win it. 
And you know that can't cause a run on the pound. That can't cause any kind of economic crisis because they will be in opposition. So I would expect that sort of by the time of the next general election, the right will have solidified their their support um, and their role, their leadership role, and um, within the Conservative Party. You know, getting slightly closer um, to to the American Republicans. So for me, I think all the energy you know is going to be going into the right of the Conservative Party, and then the big issue is going to be can. You know, Keir Starmer have any kind of momentum as if he if he does win as prime minister, can can Labour be successful in terms of sort of the would there be this sort of big establishment counterattack within the Conservatives? I'm not even sure there would be because you know business is very. I mean, we're going to talk about this later, but business is very comfortable with Keir Starmer and comfortable with Rachel Reeve. So this idea of the Conservatives sort of going off the deep end for a little while, I, I think people might be quite complacent about. Um, I think that complacency might. And if after four years or so, Kistama's government's a bit of a flop, and then it looks like we're going to have something closer to the US Republicans in in power. Just to finish on this story, you know, Nigel Farage has always talked about supporting proportional representation. He still claims support proportional representation. Tice says the same thing. There's a few plays here, right? Like you say, they either try and parasitize the Tories or they go for a big constitutional rupture. I, I do think they are not foreclosing either of those possibilities, you know, there's a lesson there for the left, isn't it? You know, we don't have to necessarily monomaniacally just focus on one thing. Um, different people can, you know, adopt different strategies at different times with broadly the same intention. Uh, there you go. Maybe there's a lesson from UKIP, the Brexit party, and now reform for the left. Warning with regards to what we're about to see. Uh, there are some graphic descriptions that some may find distressing. The two teenagers have been given life sentences for the murder of Brianna Jai. Brianna was just 16 when she was murdered. She was transgender and her parents said she was, quote, a larger-than-life character who would leave a lasting impression on all that met her. Brianna had a popular TikTok account. On the 11th of February last year, Brianna was lured into a park by two teenagers and stabbed 28 times. She died at the scene. In December last year, Brianna's two killers were convicted of murder and their identities were today made public. Scarlett Jenkinson and Eddie Ratcliffe were both 15 at the time of the murder. Jenkinson went to school with Brianna and according to the judge, both Jenkinson and Ratcliffe had developed a warped obsession with torture and killing. Jenkinson and Ratcliffe have been sentenced to serve minimum terms of 22 and 20 years, respectively. This was Mrs. Justice Yip delivering that sentence. Scarlett and Eddie, you had been good friends from when you were 11. You were 15 when you killed. You, Scarlett, met Brianna when you moved school in October 2022. You got to know Brianna and she believed you were her friend. Brianna suffered anxiety and was nervous about going out. But on the 11th of February last year, you got her to meet you in Linear Park. For all her fears, she could not possibly have known you were a danger to her. But you too had been plotting to kill her and did so that afternoon. One of the most chilling accounts from the courtroom was in relation to what Jenkinson had told a psychiatrist who visited her in a secure unit after the murder. The prosecutor recounted it like this. She said effectively that at the time of the killing, she had in fact administered stab wounds herself. She said she had snatched the knife from Eddie's hand. 
and stabbed Brianna repeatedly. She said that Eddie had thrown Brianna to the floor and stabbed her three and four times. Then he panicked and said he didn't want to kill her, so she carried on and stabbed her a number of times. When asked how many, she said a lot. It turned out to be 28. She said she understood she'd stabbed Brianna enough times to kill her and was excited by what she was doing. She said she enjoyed thinking about the plan to kill Brianna, but her motivation for doing so was because she considered Brianna a friend and anticipated that Brianna was going to leave her and she wanted to kill her so that she would always be with her. Cheshire police had previously said they did not think Brianna's murder was motivated by transphobia as Brianna was one of five children on a list who Jenkinson and Ratcliffe had contemplated killing their head of crime had said this. I think if it hadn't been Brianna, it would have been one of the other four children on that list. It's just that Brianna was the one who was accessible at that time and then became the focus of those desires. But importantly, the judge in the case did rule transphobia to be involved. Scarlett, I have concluded that the primary motivation for Brianna's murder was your deep desire to kill. The messages reveal your fantasies and show your sadistic motives. Brianna's murder was exceptionally brutal. Your actions after the event and what you have told Dr Church confirm you enjoyed the killing. Taking all that evidence together, this was a murder involving sadistic conduct. Eddie, although your motives may not have been the same, you knew what Scarlett wanted to do and why. You understood her desire to see Brianna suffer. You actively participated in this brutal murder, knowing the sadistic motives behind it, and you cannot avoid the consequences just by saying you did not have the same desires. I find also that you, Eddie, were motivated in part by hostility towards Brianna because she was transgender. You dehumanised Brianna by constantly referring to her as it and your messages about wanting to see if she would scream like a, a man or a girl and really uh, wanting to see what size dick it had, along with checking the night before the killing that Brianna was coming, show your own interests in killing Brianna linked to your hostility towards her as a transgender person. So transphobia played a role with regard to one of the two killers, something which, to repeat, the police had previously rejected. Michael, that was a major decision, wasn't it? It changes the complexion, really, of, of how this might be reported in certain quarters because initially it was said that this was targeted, it was on the base of a protected characteristic. The judge hasn't said the opposite of that. They're not saying it was exclusively motivated by this on the behalf of both killers, but it played a role for one of them. Obviously, I suppose the first thing to say is it's just such a disturbing case. And I know that lots of people sort of listening to this, especially you know, trans people or people with trans friends will find it sort of especially disturbing. I mean, as for what the police said, you know, to not be too harsh on them, right? I think what they were probably trying to do is say this wasn't just um, a, a random thing where people were just looking for a trans person to kill, because to be honest, that would have caused even more fear, wouldn't it? Um, and it doesn't seem like that was was the case. It seems like uh, what the judge was suggesting and was that really the prime mover here was Scarlett Jenkinson, so the, the teenage girl. She had sort of planned this this killing and there was a list of, of, of five 
people. So Brianna was one of five people on there. Um, I think the the other four were sort of boys that they had some sort of beef with somehow. And so you can see how the police would say, okay, yeah, you know, we could see how transphobia could have been involved, but it just does turn out that this was randomly they chose this person when there were sort of five people on their list that they wanted to kill for their sort of you know bizarre sadistic um reasons i do think though that it you know it 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 was premature for the police to say that because obviously as the judge has said you know while transphobia might not have been the principal reason for the murder itself because the girl was sort of playing the re- leading role and she wasn't transphobic the girl was just sadistic right um there will have been a lot of people who probably you know, felt upset seeing this and sort of thought it doesn't make any sense that transphobia could not have been involved, right? And you sort of, it sort of comes down to statistics, doesn't it? There are so, so few sort of random seeming murders of kids on, on kids. And there are also very few trans people. So for it to be a complete coincidence that one of the very, very few murders was against one of the very few trans teenagers right the the idea that transphobia was not at all involved i do think was implausible and that the police by saying that you know sort of went over the mark i think they could have said you know we actually don't think this is the principal reason but of course we're not going to rule out um transphobia having a role where it seems that they basically said transphobia doesn't have much to do with it which i think you know is not very good if you're trying to win the confidence of people who are sort of massively concerned about this this sort of grim gruesome murder because you want you know, you, people need to have actually sort of the confidence that the police are looking at all angles and taking sort of every form of, of hate crime incredibly seriously, not saying, oh, no, it doesn't seem to involve that. Right. And I, I think they, they did speak too soon in this instance. I think that's fair. But also, I think, again, talking about the sort of <clears throat> political implications of this story, um, you have somebody who's been murdered. They've been stabbed 28 times, incredibly gruesome murder involving two minors. That's why it's had the attention it has. This could have been a a straight person, an LGBT person, white, black, brown, it doesn't matter. This is a very unusual crime. And I think that what the police said clearly had a role in terms of how it was was framed and how it was reported. And I think when you've had an avalanche of hate and bile directed towards any uh, group um, with a protected characteristic, in this case, trans people, I, I think that really matters. And I think... I, I can see the point you're making, Michael, but also I think, you know, it th- th- that served almost a political purpose by saying that. They didn't have to say that. And actually, I, I think the judge um, was very cautious and diplomatic with her words. Uh, and I think she was, I think it was an appropriate uh, thing to say that it played a role for one of the two killers. Um, and he is the person who initially stabbed Brianna Jai. So, good. I mean, I'm very happy that... Um, we can talk in these terms now because I, th- I think, frankly, Michael, what was a real danger was that uh, this attack wasn't being seen in the proper and full context. Given the comments made by one of the two murderers, I think it's quite clear what actually happened. I think trying to deny that reality says something quite significant. Anyway, the truth's out there and we should be very grateful for that. Next story. Acting with impunity and acting like a rogue state. Those are two phrases we've often used to describe Israel's actions since October 7th. But a new development really takes this to a new level. Israel has now bombed the Belgian Development Agency in Gaza. And that comes less than a week after Belgium insisted that, unlike the US, UK and Germany, it would not be cutting aid to UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. 
Belgium's Foreign Minister Hadja Labib tweeted this. I've just summoned the Israeli ambassador to express our strong condemnation of the destruction of Enabel offices in Gaza, that's their development agency. Attacks on civilian infrastructure breach the principles of international humanitarian law. All parties must adhere to it. The Belgian foreign ministry said it was not aware of any civilian casualties and that the building, which was shared with Handicap International, should have been empty at the time of the bombing. Uh, the Belgian Development Agency had already told their staff to evacuate two weeks ago. And Belgium, compared to much of the West, has taken a relatively critical stance towards Israel since October 7th. Their statement condemning the bombing of Annabelle included this passage. The violence must stop. Belgium calls for an immediate ceasefire by all parties, permanent and unhindered access for humanitarian aid, and the immediate and unconditional release of the hostages. Belgium also calls for the resumption of the peace process and political negotiations that could lead to a two-state solution, the only way out of this conflict. Finally, two weeks ago, the Belgian government decided to evacuate Annabelle's staff and their immediate family members. We very much hope that these people, including many children, will be able to leave Gaza quickly and unharmed. Wow, it's possible to speak common sense, it turns out, uh, and support a two-state solution and a political solution to what's happening in Gaza. There is no other solution. Michael, it's an extraordinary step to target a European state's development agency. What might, you know, what, what, what might be the consequence of all of this? The fact that the Belgians have sort of called Israel, the Israel's ambassador, to sort of castigate them for this. I mean, it, it, it could be significant. I mean, I, I'm, I assume, you know, what the Israelis will say is that we didn't target it. You know, it just so happened that the building contained um, that agency, as we know, there weren't any sort of workers for that agency in the building at the time. And, you know, to argue Israel's case, and this isn't an argument for Israel's actions, by the way, they'd say, we've, well, we've destroyed 70% of buildings in northern Gaza, so we were bound to destroy your aid agency. Right, obviously, that has some other very sinister implications, but in terms of did they target the Belgian agency, you can see how sort of that might say, oh, this was actually just random. We're just, you know, bombing buildings left, right and center. But the fact that this happened, you know, obviously, they've been bombing northern Gaza for a while. The fact that this happened specifically in the week after Belgium refused to go along with the moral panic about UNRWA. Because I think that's the important thing to remember here is if Israel are annoyed enough at Belgium that they would intentionally bomb the building of their aid agency. And as I say, this is, this is as yet unconfirmed, but there's sort of circumstantial evidence at least to sort of suggest that that's at least plausible. If they're annoyed at Belgium, it's not because they're worried about, you know, the amount of money Belgium transfers to UNRWA, right? What they're annoyed about, what they would be annoyed about, is that Belgium is one of the few brave countries, which we're going to talk about sort of in more detail in a moment, who have, I suppose, broken with, refused to go along with essentially the moral panic about UNRWA, because I think that's what this is about. I, I don't really think sort of the reason Israel, the US and the UK are doing all of this now is because they actively want to stop UNRWA working. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's sort of a secondary reason, but I think the, the principal reason is they needed a different story the moment that ICJ ruling came in. And in particular, I think they wanted a particular story that would delegitimize the UN, because obviously the International Court of Justice is a UN body, a UN organ. Um, I think it shouldn't go unnoticed that many of the sort of um, evidential claims um, that were included in the ICJ ruling, some of them were given by UNRWA. So this to me, it just seems so blatant that I can't believe the mainstream media sort of isn't talking about it in these terms. This is not just an attack on a 
you know, on, on an aid agency. This is an attack on UN, on the UN. It's an attack on international law. It's, a, it's an attack on sort of diplomacy in general, right? It, it's basically saying we, Israel, we, it's a bit like actually very similar to when the, the United States was sort of running up to the Iraq war where they were saying, screw the UN, the real international community is the United States and anyone who wants to be our friend, right? Anyone who wants to go along with the crimes of the United States, that's the international community. The UN, actually, that's this debunked, backward, outdated institution. Israel are trying to do exactly the same thing right now. And, you know, the US is going along with it, predictably. Um, the UK is going along with it very pathetically. And thank God for countries like Belgium who are saying, no, this is ridiculous. And potentially getting their aid buildings bombed as a result. Very interesting counterpoint, you know, who is the international community? Is it the multilateral organizations, uh, which basically include every single sovereign nation state on planet Earth? Or is it Rupert Murdoch, George W. Bush, and John Howard, alongside Tony Blair? I think global public opinion made its mind up in 2003, and something similar is going to happen this time. Also, I should say, you know, Belgium has become synonymous with, you know, uh, multilateral institutions, of course, the European Commission is based in uh, Brussels. Britain went to war for Belgium in 1914. Be careful how you treat uh, the Belgians. Uh, now, of course, Belgium isn't alone in having refused to defund UNRWA. Spain, Ireland, Norway have all said they will continue funding the agency. But its biggest funders, chief among them the United States and Germany, have withdrawn their support. And the UN is warning it will not be able to continue to work beyond this month if those financial taps aren't turned back on. And that would be a disaster for Palestinians. Sigrid Karg is the UN's humanitarian coordinator for Gaza. Speaking at a recent press conference, she said this. There's no substitution for the humanitarian role that is played in Gaza. We need to all ramp up given the totality of needs and the scale and the complexity of the crisis, but there's no substitution. There is no way uh, any organization can replace or substitute the tremendous capacity, the fabric of UNRWA, the ability uh, and their knowledge of the population in Gaza. That was at the UN. It's important to say Ms. Karg was previously the Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister in the Netherlands. Good luck calling her a supporter of Hamas. How far is this ridiculousness going to go? Belgium, the Netherlands, good luck. Uh, on the ground in Gaza, Al Jazeera spoke to two Palestinians about the country's defunding UNRWA. UNRWA is our lifeline. Who will give us food and drink after the war? May God help the people. What can I say? People here are appealing on donor states to reconsider. The comments of Britain, Germany and some other European countries on aid for the Palestinian people is a disaster for us. Today they punish us as if we were as guilty as the occupiers. The occupation keeps on doing crimes, and yet they are supporting them to do more crimes against us. Michael, over the weekend, I even read in the Financial Times just how damaging uh, defunding UNRWA would be. Financial Times, the Dutch seemingly, the Belgians, the Irish. Why are the UK, US and Germany taking such a step when so many common sense voices are saying how outrageous it is? Because they are happy to go along with anything Israel want in order to demonize the Palestinians. I mean, I think it's as simple as that. I mean, it's also, I mean, I think it's worth sort of harking back, as I did before, to that 2003 moment. These are not countries that have any serious commitment to the United Nations or to international law, right? They are very happy to sort of say, oh, well, we'll, um, 
we'll go along with it when it's in our interest. But you know, let's let's form a coalition of the willing, a coalition of the willing who are willing to do a genocide in Gaza. I mean, essentially, that's what we're talking about right now. It, you were saying sort of lots of the sensible voices talking about the damage that that cutting sort of UNRWA funding would be. But I do think there have been too many sort of liberal centrist voices willing to sort of play the game that this is a reasonable thing to do. You know, people say these are very serious allegations and they should be investigated before we turn the taps on again, right? As we've been saying, you know, on the show this week, this is an allegation made about 12 people in an organization that employs 13,000 people. I was on Sky on Monday with Bronwyn Maddock. She's the, the director of Chatham House. I have to say, she's fairly reasonable on, on nearly all, all the questions. Very nice woman. But on this UNRWA question, she was really taking seriously this idea that these were serious allegations. They had to be investigated. And also, um, if we don't put the aid through UNRWA, we can just put the aid through sort of different organizations. Um, and I think those two clips there sort of really show why that's not correct, right? You've got this very high up person at the UN, as you'd said, former Deputy Prime Minister of the Netherlands, saying, you you can't just switch agency, right? <laughs> UNRWA employs 13,000 people. They have knowledge of, of, of the area. I mean, most of the people they employ will be Palestinians from Gaza, right? So it's not a surprise that 12 of them were involved with, with Hamas. It's, it's a bit like you, you could sort of say, oh, we're going to defund the, the Belfast um, local authority because two teachers join the IRA. And then someone says, oh, but we can get uh, this sort of private tuition agency to teach the kids instead. No, you, you, can't, you can't just sort of say, well, collapse an organization of 13,000 people and hope that these small NGOs pop up and, and do their work for them. That's not how it's going to work. And I really don't think that it is being taken seriously enough by sort of liberals and centrists how outrageous, how calculated, how vicious it was for the United Kingdom to, I mean, not just go along with the United States and, the, and Israel, but sort of really help lead the way with this demonization of, of UMRA, which is the key agency um, providing the conditions of life in Gaza. I mean, obviously, the, the conditions of life are barely there in Gaza anyway. 26,000 people have been killed. But what conditions of life there are there are being provided by UMRA, and then to defund them the, in, the, in the 24 hours after the ICJ rules that genocide is plausible in Gaza, I, I, I still can't really think of a more sort of despicable act um, by our government in the United States, maybe since 2003, since the Iraq war. Yeah, the point about um, a few bad apples, I mean, you said 12. I I've seen in terms of actual active involvement, the number seems to be constantly falling. I've seen four. Uh, but given, like you say, so many are actually Palestinians, it seems remarkably low it's even 12 when you're dealing with a bureaucracy of over 10,000 people. I mean, if you had in a major UK civil service department, whatever, Department of Justice, Department of Housing, whatever, if four or five people were somehow connected to the far right, no sensible person, Department of Work and Pensions, no sensible person would say, right, that's it. We're going to scrap the Department of Work and Pensions. We're going to administer national pensions through a, some charities and we'll, you know, we'll sort something out. Nobody would say that. It would be crazy. Lots of people would suffer unfairly. The precise same thing happens here. But of course, common sense logic goes out the window when it comes to Palestinians, even amongst people like you just said there, Michael, people who might otherwise seem quite sensible, centrist, well, they don't, they just, they talk complete nonsense, actually. If you didn't know already, we are entirely funded by our audience who support us with monthly donations. But another way you can support Navarra Media is through our merch store, where we are currently running 20% off on selected items. All our merch is ethically made and all profits go to supporting our journalism. Next story. It feels like a story we see every week, but this time it's actually confirmed. 
No, really. Labour has dropped its commitment to invest $28 billion a year in the green economy. The story was confirmed in The Guardian, who said the party will keep plans to invest in green infrastructure, but that they will be cutting their green ambitions by around two-thirds. Well, it's just lucky we didn't see the hottest day in January on record recently. I'm kidding. That's exactly what happened last month. Uh, The dropping of the pledge doesn't come as much of a surprise. On Thursday, Shadow Chancellor Rachel Rees refused to recommit to the 28 billion figure multiple times. And Shadow Treasury Secretary Darren Jones has now appeared to confirm the Guardian story. Beth Rigby, in an interview afterwards, tried to get uh, Rachel Reeves to commit very hard, multiple times, to the £28 billion of spending uh, towards your green prosperity plan. Uh, The only line she could really elicit was that the fiscal rules come first and all of our policies are subject to that iron discipline. Is the message from Labour that nothing is more important than the economy, even the environment? Well, the environment uh, is important, but the economy is at the bedrock of our ability to do anything about it. Uh, And that's why Rachel is right to say that our fiscal rules are non-negotiable and we'll never play fast and loose with the economy in the way that the Conservatives have, because that's a risk to the country's finances. And as people have experienced with their mortgage bills and energy bills and lots of other bills, uh, to family finances as well. Uh, But look, the Green Prosperity Plan is about future investment. It's not about day-to-day spending on public services. And, you know, anybody that runs a business will know future investment uh, will depend on the success of your business and the market conditions at that time. Uh, And for us, that means that the number that we will get to if we are in government will be subject to two things. First, it will be subject to uh, the state of the economy. We knew we're going to inherit a bad uh, a bad economy from the Conservatives, but we have plans to turn that around. And of course, we hope to be successful doing that. But it will also be subject to case-by-case business cases that if I'm the Chief Secretary to the Treasury in the next Labour government, I will have to sign off. Uh, and so that will depend on what the types of projects are, what the types of partnerships are with the private sector, and also our ability for the market and for our countries to deliver on those projects. So the number will move around just as a matter of fact. It will depend on this on, on the strength of the economy. We will only invest mm-hmm. when it's affordable to do so, but also on a case-by-case uh, basis working with the private sector. Michael, this makes absolutely no sense. We won't invest to make money because it'll cost money. Like that's the whole point of your the definition of investment is is money to make money. As businesses know, you can't invest if there's no money. No, they invest to make money. He was basically saying, look, we're we're not going to do it sort of by figure. What we're going to do is sort of look on a case by case basis. Is it worth our investment? If it's worth our investment, we'll do it, right? But then at the other hand, he's saying, so long as it fits within our fiscal rules. So you've got, you got one argument, which is we're not going to spend £28 billion because there isn't the money there. The other argument, which is actually we're only going to invest where it makes sense to invest. But what if it makes sense to invest £28 billion? Right? There's an inconsistency there. The thing that really worries me here as well is I saw a tweet from Tom Harwood recently that I thought was, you know, he was quite annoyed. He was like, it's annoying that Labour have managed to get away um, with blaming interest rate hikes on Liz Truss's mini budget, right? And, you know, he's, he's got somewhat motivated reasoning there because he was a bit of a fan of Liz Truss and her mini budget. But he is right that the reason we have the inflation levels we do and the reason that interest rates went up in that very short period of time, it was because of that mini budget. But, you know, there is a long term situation going on here where interest rates are, are high in most of the world and inflation is high in most of the world. But uh, Labour have been very effective at crafting this story where it is just because 
of that mini budget just because um, Liz Truss played fast and loose with the economy, as they would like to say, because she didn't go to the OBR and um, make sure that it all confined or conformed, sorry, to to her fiscal rules. And that's told a story about the economy, which is very effective for winning the next election, just as the Conservatives told a story which was completely untrue about the 2008 financial crisis. So the Tories told this story. Um, it was Labour that crashed the economy by spending too much on public services. If it was Labour that crashed the economy, it was because they didn't regulate the financial services enough, right? That, that's why we got the financial crisis. And to be honest, it started in the United States. So if um, it was Labour's fault. It was because of deregulation. But the Tories managed to tell this story where it was because they spent too much on social services. Again, that was great for the Conservative Party for winning the next election. But it also really fit in with the Conservative sort of longer term plan, which was to destroy public services. They said, you can't spend too much money because then you'll have a crash. Therefore, you should give us a job as uh, you know the governing party. And um, you should support us when we trash social services. You know, there was this very coherent project they were ineffective. We should be in power. They were ineffective because they spent too much. When we're in power, we won't spend much at all. Labour, I think, have very effectively told this lie, essentially, again, which is that the reason we're in a difficult economic situation is because of you know one budget by the Conservatives. They said, you know, what Liz trusted, the, the crisis sort of washed out of the system within about a month. <laughs> and then it's just the sort of long-term fundamentals that have left us where we are. So Labour have told this lie, which is very politically effective for getting into government. But the only story they're using it to tell about what they should do once they get in government is essentially that austerity is needed again. You know, like the the story that Corbyn and McDonald were telling, um, you know, obviously it wasn't as effective as this one. They didn't win the election. But the story they were telling is that the reason everything is collapsing is because of seven years of austerity or nine years of austerity, depending on when the election was. And yes, the, the theory there was that that would bring people to vote Labour. And then once you're in power, you will have the legitimacy to sort of say, we have a diagnosis of what's wrong with this country. There's been no investment. We'll do the investment. Labour look like they're going to get into power where their only sort of you know, analysis, their critique of what went before is that the Tories spent too much. <laughs> and sort of after, after 14 years of, you know, essentially austerity, I mean, we're spending a lot on the NHS now, partly because it sort of fell on its face after COVID, after sort of years and years of, of squeezing its funding. But we're getting a Labour government in power whose critique is, one, the Conservatives are, are incompetent, and two, the principal reason the Conservatives were incompetent is because they spent too much money. And that is putting us in a terrible situation to do anything interesting once they are in power. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm concerned, Aaron. Also, this whole thing of Darren Jones saying, anybody who runs a business, you've never run a business. You're a lawyer. Keir Starmer's a lawyer. Rachel Reeves is a career economist. Now, of course, I'm, I'm on the left. I want people from all backgrounds to be in politics, including people in, involved in organized labor, trade unionists. But don't constantly talk about business, small business. None of you have absolutely any relationship whatsoever to small and, small and medium-sized business. None of you. None of you. John McDonnell has as much connection to business as Darren Jones. Uh, and what frustrates me, Michael, is that the way that the media has covered this story, like we never actually knew the, the 28 billion, was it all public money? Or was it, you know, four or five billion of public money, which would then, quote unquote, crowd in private money? That was always my read on things. And then here he's saying, as you sort of hinted at at the beginning of your response, we will only make good investments. Well, presumably the 28 billion was always going to be good investments. You weren't going to say, yeah, let's invest money so it makes no return, completely, you know, screws over the taxpayer. Nobody thought that. Keir Starmer, when mooting this stuff years ago, before ditching it, 
was saying that actually this is investment in Britain's growth, our economic trajectory, it's going to upgrade our industrial capacity, blah, 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 blah. But now that's all irrelevant. Now you have to explain why that's irrelevant. It's an investment. You know, like I say, the entire political class tells people, get a mortgage. What is a mortgage? Mortgage is debt. Why? Because it's a long-term asset. Okay, why can't the state run along the same principles? Apparently, the state has to basically rent forever. That's the equivalent of austerity. Don't buy an asset using debt. Instead, rent forever to save money because it's cheaper than paying off the mortgage. Well, why don't you say the same thing then to private individuals, private citizens? You're always so you know happy for people to use debt to buy assets. Why can't the state do the same thing? Ideology, my friends. Ideology. And I thought we were out of this to some extent, um, but it's the exact same rhetoric and ideology that was used in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. They like it, by the way. This is my theory, Mike. I don't know about you. They like it. Labour likes it. The Tories like it. They all like it because it means they don't have to do anything. If you haven't got the money to solve problems, you don't have to do anything. It's a bit like the high streets. You know, They love to blame the internet for the high streets, even though if I go to Italy, Spain, France, Poland, Belgium, the high street looks very good. Or if I go to Winchester, Norwich, you know, wealthier places, Edinburgh, high street looks great. What is the high street in, in, in Bury or Bolton or um, Newport? Why does the high street look crap there? Of course, it's about in income and regional inequality. But the establishment loves it on us, the internet. Why? Because then they say, sorry, we can't do anything. We'd love to do something. We can't. We'd love to. We can't. We're just going to have to earn our £90,000 a year as a backbencher, not actually doing anything. Sorry about that. What a shame. How convenient. Uh, now, environmentalists might be disappointed with Labour's new direction. Some business people are rather happy, though. Ian Anderson is chair of the consultancy firm Kikira. Keir Stormer has changed the Labour Party. If you look at his approach to business, look at Rachel Reeves' uh, plan around fiscal discipline, you look at Johnny Reynolds' uh, deep, deep, day-by-day -day engagement with all parts of our economy, developing an industrial strategy, that's what businesses want to hear. That video was proudly put out by the Labour Party, but Ian doesn't have a record of great judgment. In August 2022, he tweeted this, I've been a Conservative for almost four decades. I've known Liz Truss almost half that time. I've worked with Liz on economic reform and boosting opportunity. She has fresh ideas and real energy. She does what she says and is strong and loyal. That's why I'm backing hashtag Liz for leader. Now he's talking about industrial strategy. Liz Truss doesn't believe in industrial strategy. She wants to privatize everything. Michael, why, whenever, whenever Labour talks about business, does it mean people like this guy, right? It always means multinationals, supermarket chains, and, and consultants. You know, the guy is a consultant, yet he's talking about industrial strategies, if he's like, you know, the CEO of Simons or, you know, BAE Systems. He doesn't know what he's talking about. These are buzzwords. Am I right? If you were suspicious that consultancy wasn't a real job and you just paid to chat lots of bullshit, I mean, this guy who's gone from, I'm a big backer of Liz Trust to I want industrial policy under Jonathan Reynolds, I mean, he, he is the characteristic example of that. Also, never seen someone say, fiscal discipline sort of quite so much enthusiasm wow. as as he did um i you know labor would say look we're, we're trying to win over we're trying to win over conservatives because we want to win the election yes you you do want to win over some conservatives to win the election but they seem to want to win over the right of the conservative party right you know in political sociology study that as a party you should go for the median voter so you know you, you spend a lot of time trying to get the person in the 50th percentile because you know you've already got 
you know, the people who are sort of the 30% most left-wing people in society. So you're really aiming for the, sort of those people in the middle. Labour seems to be really aiming for people who are sort of like in the top two percentiles of sort of like right wing in this in this country. Like they need some sort of super majority of 80% to win the next general election. If Margaret Thatcher would vote for you, you probably are doing something wrong. You know, obviously you want to be appealing to as many people as possible. But if this guy who literally a year and a half ago was enthusiastically backing Liz Truss, the leader of the Conservative Party, if he is now, you know, publicly going on Twitter to endorse you, I know. Do you, do you really need this guy in the coalition? Yes, obviously, Labour needed to expand its coalition from 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 2019. But did it need this guy? And how did it win this guy? What do you have to do to get someone who has been a Conservative for 39 years, so the entire New Labour period, right? Tony Blair was too left for this guy. Tony Blair was too left for this guy. But Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves have said something to him that's meant that after being a member of the Conservative Party for 39 years and backing Liz Trust for leader. Suddenly, he's really confident about what Labour will do for him. What's happened there? You know, what was the secret? Does he think that sort of Keir Starmer is more competent than Tony Blair, or has Keir Starmer offered him a sweetener, even sweeter than what Tony Blair off offered consultancies and, and and people in the City of London? Yeah, you know, the secret may be a safe seat, Michael. Who knows? Who knows? Um, just quickly to finish on this one, you know. People talk about moderate progressive centre-left as technocratic. It's a classic example of somebody who's not a technocrat. You know, you have Darren Jones, who's a lawyer, talking about business. You've got a guy who's a consultant talking about industrial policy. And you've got Keir Starmer, who's a lawyer, uh, talking about how they're going to, you know, recalibrate British business. Not even got anything to do the businesses that make up this country, okay? The shops, the cafes, the restaurants, the pubs, the tradespeople, they are the businesses that are, you know, they run the country alongside the public sector, of course. You know, consultancy, consultancies, I say based in London, the guy probably has work from home in like, you know, some multi-million pound house in Surrey and he has some, you know, work share space in central London. God knows. That is not business. But because it's next to Westminster inside the M25, the entire political class is like, this is the voice of business. You know, you have the Chinese. I was watching a great talk by Eric Lee. The Chinese are talking about long-term, 5, 10, 15, 20-year technological trends. How do we benefit? How do we advance? How do we build prosperity? We have a bunch of schmucks um, cosplaying, talking about business, uh, and they think LinkedIn is the same as what the Chinese are doing. I'd, I'm, I'm terrified. I am terrified at how stupid our country's establishment is. Next story. Mr. Chu, let's cut straight to the chase. Is TikTok under the influence of the Chinese Communist Party? No, Senator. We are a private business. That was U.S. Senator Tom Cotton grilling TikTok CEO Xiao Tzu Chu at a hearing on online child safety. Now, social media has taken a bashing in recent days. Mark Zuckerberg was another industry figure who was grilled. But with TikTok, whose parent company is ByteDance, things are somewhat different. But that's because of accusations that TikTok takes orders from the Chinese Communist Party. But while it's true that the CCP has a board seat at ByteDance, that only applies to the company's Chinese subsidiary, meaning debates around levels of political influence relating to TikTok remain speculative and often lacking evidence. This quote from US website The Hill puts it well. 
While there's no definitive evidence that TikTok is following Beijing's direct or even indirect orders, we simply do not know much about the inner workings of the company or any other social media company. After all, there is no US law that requires platforms to explain to users how they moderate content or use automated tools. There is also no law that forces platforms to be audited or subject to external scrutiny. Of course, that's a criticism that can be leveled at any social media giant, but at the very least, you can say there's a lack of transparency. However, Definitive evidence doesn't seem to be an issue for Senator Tom Cotton, because when his claims of state influence were met with incredulity by Mr. Chu, he turned his attention to the CEO's nationality. You said today, as you often say, that you live in Singapore. Of what nation are you a citizen? Singapore. Are you a citizen of any other nation? No, Senator. Have you ever applied for Chinese citizenship? Senator, I serve my nation in Singapore. No, I did not. Do you have a Singaporean passport? Yes, and I served my military for two, two and a half ha- years in Singapore. Do you, have any other, do you have any other passports from any other nations? No, Senator. Your wife is an American citizen. Your children are American citizens. That's have correct. You, have you ever applied for American citizenship? Not, no, not yet. Okay. Have you ever been a member of the Chinese Communist Party? Senator, I'm Singaporean. No. Does Tom Cotton think that Singapore is a city in China? Like, I, I genuinely don't know. Uh, By the way, Mr. Chu's CV is about as establishment as it gets. He was at University College London, he studied economics, then worked at Goldman Sachs. Then he goes to Harvard, interns at Facebook, his wife is Taiwanese-American. He basically embodies the aspirations of millions of East Asians who work at the interface of East and West. Does the US really want to alienate these people and claim they're all potential spies? Maybe. Here's what Cotton said next. Let me ask you some hopefully simple questions. You said earlier, in response to your question, that what happened at Tiananmen Square in June of 1989 was a massive protest. Did anything else happen in Tiananmen Square? Yes, I think it's well documented. There was a massacre. Uh, There was an indiscriminate slaughter of hundreds or thousands of Chinese citizens. Is the Chinese government committing genocide against the Uyghur people? Senator, anyone, including, you know, you can come into yes, TikTok yes, and talk yes, about no. this topic. I'm asking you, yes or any or no. topic you are a worldly, to you. cosmopolitan, well-educated man who's expressed many opinions on many topics. Is the Chinese government committing genocide against the Uyghur people? Actually, Senator, I talk mainly about my company, and I'm yes, here to yes talk or, about what yes TikTok no. does. Yes or no? You're here, we give, allow... you're here to give testimony that is truthful and honest and complete. Senator Cotton, massacre is a synonym for indiscriminate slaughter. And on the Uyghur question, from what I've seen, there is indeed a strong argument that it fits the UN definition of genocide, which in fact is more expansive than most people might initially think. That would also mean, for instance, the Irish famine was a genocide, as well as, in my view, what is happening in Gaza. What is more, a cultural genocide is distinct from a genocide as defined by the UN. But should your views on whether or not there is a genocide against the Uyghurs, a contentious topic, disqualify you from leading a business in the United States? After all, Jeffrey Sachs and Farid Zakaria have pushed back against the claim in the past. And then there was this moment when US billionaire Chamat Palihaptia said this on a podcast in 2022. Nobody cares about what's happening to the Uyghurs, okay? You, you bring it up because you really what? care. And I think what that's do you mean, nice that you cares? care. The rest of us don't care. I'm just well, telling you, you a very care? hard. Wait, wait, I'm you're telling you, you personally very, don't care. I'm telling you a very hard, ugly truth. Okay, of all the things that I care about, yes, it is below my line. Now, I think it's weird to disregard potential human rights abuses or claims of genocide like that, but it underscores my point. 
Does Mr. Chu now need to have certain opinions to operate as a CEO in the United States? And if so, why was it different for that gentleman or Farid Zakaria? Elon Musk said there were two sides to the story in Xinjiang. Does that mean he's now disqualified from running SpaceX? Now remember, this hearing was supposed to be about online child safety. So naturally, Tom Cotton also inferred that China has its sights on America's youth. Well, let's turn to what TikTok, a tool of the Chinese Communist Party, is doing to America's youth. Does the, uh, does the name Mason Edens ring a bell? Uh, Senator, you may have to give me more specifics, if you don't mind. Yeah, he was a 16-year-old Arkansan. After a breakup in 2022, he went on your platform and searched for things like inspirational quotes and positive affirmations. Instead, he was served up numerous videos glamorizing suicide until he killed himself by gun. How do you respond to that? The causality between those two things is obviously highly contentious. I actually, obviously, researching the show, went to look online as to the reporting around this, who was making that causal claim. It was basically nobody. Um, however, this is clearly a political intervention by Mr. Cotton. So inevitably, Joe Biden is involved in all of this. Here's how Tom Cotton wraps up his theory. Has the Federal Trade Commission sued TikTok during the Biden administration? Uh, Senator, I cannot talk about whether there's any are you being ongoing... Are you currently being sued by the Federal Trade Commission? Senator, I cannot talk about uh, any potential lawsuits. I didn't say potential, actual. Are you being sued by the Federal Trade Commission? Uh, Senator, I think I've given you my answer. I, I cannot talk is about it. no. Ms. Yaccarino's company is being sued, I believe. Mr. Zuckerberg's company is being sued, I believe. Yet TikTok, the agent of the Chinese Communist Party, is not being sued by the Biden administration. We have a company that's a tool of the Chinese Communist Party that is poisoning the minds of America's children, in some cases driving them to suicide, and that at best, the Biden administration is taking a pass on, at worst, maybe in collaboration with. Thank you, Mr. Chu. Michael, this is meant to be an opportunity for senators to ask questions, but it kind of sounds like Tom Cotton's made his mind up already. <laughs> I just like, thank you, Mr. Chu. I'm done with you now. I mean, it's sort of a, a sort of cultural symbol of multipolarity, um, you know, this East Asian guy from, from Singapore just looking a lot more intelligent than the Republican senator um, questioning him. The United States having the most influential social media company in the country being owned by the Chinese is interesting. The Chinese wouldn't let the opposite happen. <laughs> the, 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 the Chinese were very sort of intentional in saying, we are not going to let these US companies um, dominate our sort of cultural sphere. And um, they sort of saw how sort of the Arab Spring, et cetera, was sort of spread on, on, on Twitter. And I don't actually think it's completely unreasonable to think that the, the Chinese government are probably going to have some influence over um, TikTok. And, you know, you, you, you've said this guy, very impressive, very articulate. You've said sort of he has the absolute sort of establishment um, CV that one would have to sort of be moving in um, sort of Western business elites. I mean, Singapore is basically sort of Western business elite sort of territory. You, you'd see why the Chinese would would choose that kind of person to run TikTok because you know it, it would give them some cover. Now, I don't know. I don't know the evidence on this, but it seems not implausible to me. But if you wanted to make that point in a way that doesn't make America look just like some country of stupid people, like putting Tom Cotton in front of that very, very intelligent, very, very assured. 
um, businessmen, I don't think was 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 great for the the image of the United States. I think that's fair. And you're, look, your point about um, China not allowing you know Facebook, Instagram into China is a very valid one. Intriguingly, you know, um, Chinese companies are now the biggest advertisers on Meta. You've got these Chinese versions of Amazon uh, trying to now sell direct to the US consumer. Obviously, longer delivery times, but much cheaper. They're using huge amounts of money on advertising uh, on Meta to reach that target audience. So there's a certain irony there. But like you say, I think what's of real interest to me here, Michael, is this is how you know this is a stunning visual shorthand for multipolarity. There is actually a point to what Cotton is saying. You're right. However, the way his brain is working, the words coming out of his mouth, he just looks ridiculous. You know, he doesn't seem to know the difference between China and Singapore. He doesn't seem capable of understanding that actually these are different countries, though they all look the same. You have ASEAN. It's a very different economic block to China. Huge economy, huge economy. And I just think, Michael, for me, you know, look, two-thirds of the world's growth is coming from the global south. Uh, the future is partly Asian, partly African because of demographics and, and, and political economy and industrial capacity in East Asia. You know, China has the world's largest electric vehicles company, world leader in synthetic biology, solar panels, potentially AI at some point, digital payment systems. And it feels like this was a really important moment uh, where you kind of see the West looking ridiculous. You know, there was that great um, photo a couple of years ago. We had a Chinese trade delegation with the US, and on the US side, it was all old guys, and the Chinese were all, you know, younger people, men and women. Interestingly enough, the median age isn't that different between the two countries. But again, it was a visual shorthand for power, not necessarily going to China, but certainly seeping away uh, from the US. What do you make of that as well? And, and, and how do you think this kind of thing plays to you know, the hundreds of millions of people in the global south, the billions of people who aren't Chinese, but who are aspirational, who want to get ahead, who think their countries have a lot to learn from the West, but at the same time think the West is increasingly ridiculous on things like foreign policy or McCarthyism 2.0? You can tell a story which is very positive about the United States as to why they are happy to have a Chinese-owned sort of social media company be dominant in, in the United States, whereas the Chinese wouldn't allow TikTok or Facebook or whatever, which is that, you know, the Americans have the confidence that they think, um, you know, free speech, obviously, that speech is much freer in the United States than China, that, that they have the confidence to allow that and think that their system will still Will still survive. Um, you know, there might be people in China thinking, well, it's sabbatical apps, you're about to re-elect Donald Trump, don't be too complacent. But, you know, there is a positive story. And I think, you know, many people in the world do look at the United States and the bits they see that are good are free speech um, and more than anything, sort of wealth, but sort of the relative freedoms that people have. I think people look at that and they think that's that's great. You know, often sort of in, in surveys around the world, people do want to be more like the United States. But I think what's interesting about this moment is that no one wants to take lectures from the United States. So we've referred back to 2003 a few times on tonight's show um, in, in the sense that sort of that was the last time when um, the USA, the UK, um, Israel, I think back then as well, were all just saying F you to the UN. They were saying we are the international community and we can do what we want. Now, at the moment, it does seem like Israel is acting with, with impunity because of backing from the United States and, and from the UK and others. But I don't think anyone in in the global south is fooled that this is the international community. You know, I don't think they were before sort of ethically or morally. You know, I don't think in 2003 anyone would say, oh, yes, yeah, so the, the United States and the UK, they are sort of the moral authority in the world. They didn't believe that. 
but I, I think people did think that's where power lies, right? You might not like it, but to be honest, sort of the the community in the international sphere, which has the capacity to act, that that is, you know, the US, the UK, et cetera, et cetera. That is no longer the case. I don't think people are looking at sort of the United States and, and, and the United Kingdom sort of unconditional support for Israel and saying, well, that's just the way the world works. I think people are thinking this really might backfire for them because they are acting like they are, are within a unipolar world when they're not. And and the rest of the world can see that. And these sort of interactions, I mean, I think the the last time um, this gentleman spoke to to the Senate, it sort of did go quite viral um, internationally because he was schooling those United States senators who look kind of stupid. So I think this sort of cultural moment of a rising and confident East and a sort of complacent, because that's what Tom Cotton looked like there, right? He He had the confidence of someone who knew what he was talking about, but everyone looking at him was like, this guy is an idiot which I think, you know, is in some ways an analogy for sort of uh, a West which hasn't quite come to terms with the fact that it can't assume it's the boss anymore. This is having real implications for us. Uh, if you look at 5G, you know, Britain now has basically fake 5G. The speeds are no better than 4G because we gave Huawei the boot. Um, so there are material implications to all of this. And of course, finally, it wasn't TikTok that that young man killed himself with, Mr. Cotton. It was a gun. I think it says a lot about America's political culture that he wants to ban TikTok, but not firearms. Um, Michael, thank you for joining me this evening. You've been great. Thank you. A pleasure as always. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. Come back on Monday for another great show from 6pm. For now, you've been watching at Navarra Media. Have a great weekend and good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.